everybody. Hi, everybody. Happy Easter Monday. Yeah. Guess what? Guess he's, what, Patty? He's still risen. He is still risen. Death is still defeated. So, so glad y'all are here today. I saw a few people posting about the Easter weekend. Their services were great. I really hope that you went to Monday, Thursday, that you went to... Um, Good Friday. To Good, to Good Friday. Good Friday service, of course, got us both when he sang... Um, tears, tears in, in heaven. heaven. Oh my goodness. Patty wow. was over next to me and she was reaching for tissues <laughs> and everything. It was just a wonderful service. And then on Easter, I'll just tell you how what what I saw of the numbers. Now our our sanctuary effective capacity is supposed to be about 1600 people. Well, Saturday we had which Pat and I attended because we just thought, well, we'll take a little bit of the load off Sunday morning <laughs> with our two seats. So we went Saturday evening. Sorry. There were 800 people there, which is 200 more than it ever been to the Easter Saturday evening service. Yes. Then at 9 o'clock, there were about 1,675 or so. So the room was maxed out at 9 o'clock traditional. And there were even more like 1745 or something at the 11 o'clock contemporary and then there were some people at the sunrise service maybe 150 so it was really people really came out for easter this year and it was wonderful and i thought the services were great and um i just just uh, feel very blessed and so anyway me too. Yeah. So here we are. Now on Monday, Easter Monday. It's Easter Monday. Yes. It's kind of a different Easter Monday. I had to go in and get my eyes dilated this morning so my eye doctor could look down and look at all my stuff going on in there. And so, like, I just got the ability to focus again in a, just a little bit ago. And, <laughs> you know, you leave those places and you're it's so bright. You can't really see anything. You can't focus. And, and but... Now I think I'm doing okay. At least I'm. I think I'm going to be able to read the Bible on my iPad. I hope so. That'd be great. Yeah, because you make the font bigger too. See, that's the yes, iPad yes. thing. Yes, you can make the font bigger. And we were up and out so early this morning. I call this early doctor appointment morning <laughs> hair. <laughs> yeah. So it was. It uh, was. It was early, but hey, we got it done. We got it and done. And then I went to breakfast over eight. Because I liked it. And there we go. IHOP. Can't IHOP. beat an IHOP. But breakfast. I kind of put breakfast and lunch together yes. into one meal. We did. We did. We it was, did. It yeah, was sort it was of brunchy ish. Yeah, brunch. That's brunch. what we'll call it. Yes. 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 <laughs> so, anyway, hope you guys are great. Um, we are going to uh, resume our journey in Isaiah today. And notice, I'm going to go ahead. I do have to put my glasses on, I can't see well enough to leave them off for anything today. Um, so, look at this. No class next week. No class next week. April 25th, no class. Patty and I will not be here. We will be in beautiful California. And there's a very high probability that we'll be at Universal Studios. On that, yeah, we've kind, of, we've kind of identified that day as Universal Day. Yep. We think that's where we're going. And yes, we we have no kids. People asked us last time. We went to Disneyland. Well, 
who was with you it was just us. No, we really both enjoy all the rides and the attractions. We don't, we don't need kids to enjoy those places. <laughs> we're, 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 we're childish and we're childlike enough, right? Yes, Patty? yes. yes. And it saves us a fortune. <laughs> yeah. We did all that with Robbie for many years. Yeah. So anyway, um, Anyway, so we are we're, we're grateful to be here. Now, what we're going to um, do today uh, is to get into a, we're going to start by climbing into the helicopter for a minute and getting a high view of this first section of Isaiah because I think we've we've kind of run through a lot of chapters with an overview, and I'll try to tie all that together so we can kind of see where we are. I think we can we kind of need to stop and do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that'd be great. So, with all of that said, Patty, you have anything you want to add today? I don't think so. I, you know, I think you said it all. Um, just, <sighs> just thought it was a wonderful weekend. It was a great weekend. All around, it really. Easter was. always is. It's such a great moment when you stand up at Easter service, and the sanctuary's full, and everybody's going to stand up and sing that opening hymn, Christ. right? Christ the Lord is yeah. risen today. Yeah, it's just great, wonderful, just yeah. such a such a, a thrill. For many years, of course, I was preaching at the nine thirty service every Sunday, and so I um, on Easter you would be up at the and, it, and and the the pastors would sit up on the front and look out over yes. the Easter crowd, yes. and so you'd stand up and see the whole Easter crowd right in front of you, all singing. It was great. Great, great stuff. Jesus is risen. Hallelujah. Yes. Okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be your people. We are grateful for the gift of your Son. We're grateful that death has been defeated and Jesus is risen. And we just pray that you will help us to live every day of our lives in light of that truth. In light of that truth. Let it let it shape every moment of our day and week and month and being the truth that indeed your son is risen and indeed the world has never been and will never be the same all this we pray in jesus's name amen amen okay right. so and a scoot over let's get reoriented here and um okay so what i thought we would do is is Take a moment and sort of kick back for a minute and get this high-level view because we kind of race through a whole lot of chapters. I didn't read every verse of every chapter because they do get very redundant, and it's where you lose people. I would, I'm, I'm sure I would fall asleep somewhere in the midst of all of that. Um, and But now we're about to re-enter um, portions of Isaiah where... Uh, that we will slow down and read verse by verse. So so let's just get the highest level view that we can. So chapters 1 to 39, is this, this high level section written during the time of Isaiah, whether he wrote it all or not, doesn't really matter. We're going to begin today a section that is virtually identical to um, a section in the book of Kings. It's okay. Don't know where it all came from. That's okay. It's all God's word. It all comes from the time of Isaiah in, in chapters 1 through 39. And the early chapters, chapters 1 through, oh, maybe up to 12 or so, are about 
Well, kind of the usual topics. They're the topics that the Old Testament prophets wanted to write about. They're the topics that Jesus wanted to talk about, that Paul wanted to talk about, that Christian preachers today want to talk about, about God, about God's sovereignty, about the life to which we are called as God's people. Um, and when the scroll begins, Jerusalem is accused by God of not living up to their, their covenant with God that they ignored injustice and they were not being the people God had called them to be. And of course, this is a standard strain throughout the Old Testament. It, it is, um, it's really something we all need to hear still. God has expectations and hopes for us that we will be people always marked by kindness and humility and, and um, compassion and mercy. And when we're not, um, God would like us to be reminded of that. As you know, the recently uh, published a book with the title, What Jesus Expects of Us. Well, the opening chapters could be what God expects of God's people 2,700 years ago. And these opening 12 chapters are focused on the people and their arrogance and their unwillingness to live as God had taught them to live, and the fact that God called Isaiah, this prophet we meet in chapter 6, to come and carry God's word to the people and tell them all of this. All of it in the context of the great Assyrian Empire who lay just to the north of the northern kingdom and who everyone believed was about to fall on the northern kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. And that God was going to um, one day <laughs> um, show Assyria that indeed God was sovereign. And that's kind of an interesting, and I'll just say also that in those opening chapters, you remember that even in the midst of all of that stuff, you had these hints about something very special we had what we might call almost Christmas texts, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. All the, there are certain Christmas passages about Jesus, about the incarnation, that come from Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, a virgin will give birth, Isaiah 7. So you get these little signposts in the midst of all of that, looking ahead to a day that, people can hardly imagine. So, first 12 chapters, Jerusalem is arrogant, Assyria is ascendant, but God will deal with them. God calls the people to be the people um, they should be and gives them promises of a day when, um, when the world will be restored. So then you go to chapter 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16, and in that large section, it's about God's sovereignty over the nations of the earth. Who is in charge? Who is in control? Now, how God exercises that sovereignty, how God exercises that control, is something that we could talk about. I mean, 
we differ as in parental techniques, right? Some parents are a little bit more, what would we say today? They're a little bit more chill, right? Their kids are given more freedom. Other parents are much more strict and disciplined. And, and, so, and so to say that God is sovereign is it to answer the question of exactly how God exercises that sovereignty, but it is to say that indeed this is God's world it is God's cosmos, and all of those nations, all of those peoples who ignore the creator of the cosmos do so at their own peril. And they're, they're mighty and powerful in Earth's terms, in the world's terms, in the little tiny world that they're part of. And it leads them to, to, to make terrible decisions um, and forget who, who never even look for the God who is. So that we, so then we kind of roll through that section, and then when you get to like twenty seven, twenty eight, there emerges this theme of well, okay, so there's going to be some kind of righteous king, right? coming to Israel. And, and the question to that king, which we're not talking about Jesus or anything yet, we're just talking about the hope that there will be a righteous king who will listen to God and follow in God's way rather than make um, all kinds of treaties and everything and pursue things the way that everybody else in the world pursues things. You might remember that was King Ahaz's problem. So there's this looking ahead to, to, will there be a righteous king who will actually trust God and choose to listen to God as opposed to all the power brokers of the day, if we want to think about it that way. And there are contrasts offered. Um, chapter 34 is a chapter about sort of the earth, um, the earth nation sort of laid to waste in contrast to chapter 35, which we're going to look at, begin with today, which is a picture of, of Israel, in Israel who has listened to God, who has been faithful, who has made the right choices, who has put their trust in God. So that's why I say when you... It's, it's so difficult in the depths of Isaiah, when you're reading through it chapter by chapter, to, to sort of keep your eye on these questions. Are you being faithful? Are you being just? Are you making the right choices? Are you listening to God first in your life? Is God's, are you first loyal to God before anyone or anything else? Those questions that you find in these this opening section of Isaiah um, asked of God's people, these kingdoms of Israel and Judah, I mean, those are the questions still. They're the questions still. And um, they're the questions Paul asks his community of new Christians as he lays out, you know, the implications of Good Friday and Easter for them and for the world these same questions. Will you be faithful? Will you make the right choice? Will you really trust God? 
Will you really trust Jesus? Or will you insist upon going your own, own way because you're arrogant and damn it, you're just quite sure that you know better? And um, so, that's a, so that's the question. Um, and we'll see that question come to play in chapters 36 and 37 in particular when we meet a king named Hezekiah. But let's not race ahead there. Um, while I'm making my way to turning my iPad back on, getting back to where I need to be, to Isaiah 35, um, I'll just ask if there are any questions or things. I, You know, I had hoped I think I'll do this. I'll I'll bring on a slide or two next week. Um, not next week. Oh. In two weeks, <laughs> a little bit of this on a slide, so maybe if you see it, it will help me. I was going to do it today, but I just didn't think it would take so long for me to be able to see again after my appointment this morning, <laughs> which is really what it boiled down to. I just haven't been able to see well enough today to do that. So we're going to be at, Patty put it down in the comments section for you, at Isaiah chapter 5. 35. 35 verse 1. And this is in contrast to chapter 34, which is this picture of wasteland and destruction because, and you know, it's, it's... Chapter after chapter of that. Right. It, you know what it's like? It's like John's gospel. John's gospel is very is very black and white. Will you choose Jesus or not? Will you choose the light or are you going to stay in the darkness? There's no place else. There's no middle area saying, oh, I don't know, we'll see, we'll see. You know, let me hear the arguments and we'll check all this out and maybe someday I'll... No. Will you, will you come to the light or will you stay in the darkness? Will you choose Christ or will you not? And here it is in Isaiah, will you choose God or not? Will you be faithful to Yahweh or not? So, in 35 is a picture of a land um, which has made the right choice. 35.1, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. I've been to that wilderness. There is nothing there. So when you talk about the wilderness blossoming, it's quite a statement. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. You know, all creation, Paul writes, groans awaiting its redemption. The human rebellion against God, in some way, not it not only wrecked our relationship with God, it put some sort of cosmic tear in creation. So if you listen to Jesus, and he talks about the rocks and the stones ringing and singing, and if you listen to the psalmist who talks about the mountains and the hills and the trees ringing and singing, and you look at the wilderness here, rejoicing greatly, shouting for joy. What is that about? It's about a world put right. More than just humanity being made right with God, it is about the world, about creation being put right. 
we'll come across much later in Isaiah the phrase, the new heavens and the new earth that you find in Revelation 21, an earth renewed, restored, made right, made infinitely better. So, verse 2 of 35, It will burst into bloom, it will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of Yahweh, the splendor of our God. Our neighbors who, who turn away, they are going to see it. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. <laughs> I wonder how many knee replacements are on this call right now. <laughs> Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Don't fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. You may say to me, it's not attractive to hear about vengeance, is it? I'm going to say to you, well, as the Bible unfolds, I would agree with you, but it's honest. It's honest. It's honest. Verse 5. Then, then, Will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped? Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Israel's not a place with enough water. The Jordan River is a trickle of what it once was. As these, as the countries today and right now, 2021, 2022, whatever year it is, over there, between Jordan and Israel, they, they, they want to get as much water as they can out of the Jordan and not kill it. And so the Dead Sea is getting smaller. The Jordan is, is becoming more and more a trickle rather than a river. This it's, kind of sounds like that place we've been blessed to visit a few times in Israel, and we will this time in uh, right? Ian Getty. And in Gedi, it's because yes. it's an oasis. The little the little deers are up. They're actually in the trees. It's bizarre. And there's waterfalls. Waterfalls and, and every yes, it's like this little oasis in the middle of sorry. all this wilderness and desert. Yeah. Exactly. And Gedi's a great, great idea. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground, bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there, and it will be called the way of holiness. You see, that is God's way, and it will be for those who walk on that way. So, all right, what does it mean to walk on the way of holiness? What it let me, let me throw some other ways that I would talk about this if I were preaching it or teaching it in the context of the New Testament. Walk the way of Christ. Walk the way of Christ-likeness. Walk the way of the fruit of the Spirit. Be kind, compassionate, merciful, gracious, self-controlled, patience. Right? Those attributes... Those virtues are what make up 
the life of a person walking the path of holiness. It's not, it's not complicated. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. Um, I've been told a few times that people don't like the word Christ-likeness. They can't imagine that they could become Christ-like. Well, I'm not saying that people are going to become Jesus. What I'm saying is we can become more like him in the way that we interact with others in this world. We can become more like Paul in the way we interact with others in this world, in the way that we come to God in prayer. That's the way of holiness. That's what it is. That's what the, that, that's what that's the life to which we are called. Um, First Peter, we're called to be a holy nation, by which he means a holy people. Right? That that's it. So it's. I think sometimes we're inclined to make this complicated. Um, I think there's a lot of. Christians and sects and cults and over th things over the years that want to make it complicated sometimes because people want to use it to control others. But it's not complicated. It's not complicated. Um, let me give you one other hint. Okay, so put put your bookmark there. Or put, your, put your finger there or something. Um, and go to go to First Corinthians thirteen. Yes, to the marriage <laughs> chapter. First Corinthians. First Corinthians thirteen. Verse one. Actually, verse four. This is this is what's read at every wedding. Not every wedding, but many weddings. It's read at many weddings. I think our, we were had we had a meeting the other day on a fall sermon series we're doing on Paul. I think Arthur said he wanted to particularly preach on this passage outside a um, a marriage context, and I applaud him for it because it it's it it we get we get blind to it. So let me just show you a trick which I was shown. Not really a trick, but there you go. That I was shown a long time ago. So we're talking about we're talking about Christ likeness. So, verse four of 1 Corinthians thirteen: Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love's does, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So now we go back to verse 4, and I'm going to read it differently. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus doesn't envy. Jesus doesn't boast. He's not proud. He doesn't dishonor others. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. 
Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. Now here's the thing about the way of holiness. Put your own name there. I'll use mine. Scott is patient. Scott is kind. Scott doesn't envy. He doesn't boast. He isn't proud. He doesn't dishonor others. He's not self-seeking. He isn't easily angered. On and on you go. See, all the way through it. And you can say to me, well, of course, as you will, well, gosh, I, I have a ways to go, don't I? And I'm going to say, of course you do. We all do. We still live between the times. It isn't like you're already the full person whom you will be in the fully manifest kingdom of God after Jesus returns. We're still in between the times. We still struggle, struggle with sin. But this kind of little passage right here in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, it just helps us grasp the shape of the life we should lead. Not because, not this is, may surprise you, not simply because God says so. That would make it arbitrary. And I don't like arbitrary things. But because this is how God has designed us to live. I'm reading a lot lately about levels of unhappiness, anxiety, suicide, discontent in America. And I think it's fundamentally, at the very deepest root of it, it is because we have a society that seems to be wanting people to live lives for which we are not designed. We are not designed to live lives of cancellations and selfishness and pride and materiality and all the... No! Arthur Brooks, totally out of religious context, when he looked at the literature, sociological literature today, would say no. We should want less. We should want less. Less stuff. Less glittering lights. Because they have not been good for us and they will not be good for us. So, there we go. There are sermons all over the place in there. It's hard just to say the first thing where you say, Patty is patient. <laughs> yeah, it is. But you see, but it's still the shape of the life to which that we should strive for every day. Same way as it is to read the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Yes. Right? You want to look at that? Oh, why don't we? I'm, I'm so excited about being able to see again here <laughs> <laughs> that I'm ready for anything. So go to Galatians 5. I don't know the verse number. We'll find it. <laughs> oh. Okay. Galatians 5, verse 22. <laughs> now, we won't read the long list of all the things that, you know, we should stay away from because I would, I, that takes some teaching. That takes some teaching to really do right. I put Galatians 
And the, the word checker changed it to gelatin for me, so I have gone. <laughs> <laughs> Turn to gelatin, chapter 5, verse 22. Okay, so it's Galatians 5, 22. And Galatians is a very, really, it's kind of an angry letter. Paul is not happy with these people. Um, and he just sort of lays it all out. He lays out um, the life to which they are not called which he summarizes in verses 19, 20, and 21. But then he turns to the life to which we are called and for which we are actually made. The fruit of the Spirit. You see, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwells in each of us. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you and, and, and strengthens you and helps you to get to become more Christ-like than you thought possible. And um, here's the shape of that. But the fruit of the Spirit, Paul writes, is love, joy, peace, forbearance. That's a pretty grace-filled word right there. People in our world are so quick to take offense and smash people over the head and cancel them and everything else. Forbearance, kindness. I'm reading a lot about kindness lately. People are beginning, maybe, to recognize that if you want to be happier, just be kinder. That's it. Totally out of religious context. Just... Just psychologists and sociologists, you want to be, you want to be happier. Spread some kindness. Spread a lot of kindness around. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So see if you take those nine words, and Paul could have written more or less. I don't think the nine is not. If you ask, I don't ask like the perfect list. There is no perfect list. He's providing shape to to this life lived in the spirit. If you took those nine and you went kind of went through them, I think you would quickly see how much of our culture today is oriented away from those nine. gentleness and self-control don't seem to be high on the priority list for people of all political stripes today. So, when we go, let's go back to Isaiah. See if I can get back there myself. Back to Isaiah 35. So when Isaiah, here in this passage is talking about the way of holiness. That's what he's talking about. And I saw Mona put a comment on that, you know, you're supposed to be ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean to go in the temple. True. True statement. But to speak of ceremonial cleanliness and ritual cleanliness is to stop short of Jesus. And if you, right, because, because 
Jesus wasn't about ritual cleanliness being the end-all be-all. He was a righteous Jew. And he was about Sabbath-keeping. But, but he wouldn't let that become the center of, of what God had called his people to do. The center of what God called his people to do was to love God and to love others. Neither of which has anything to do with ritual cleanliness. And, and so the ritual cleanliness and the priests and the temples and the robes and all that, that stuff, they are all signposts, right? Helping people grasp that we are unholy and need to be made holy. And so they're pointing to Jesus, but they aren't the end. They're only the sign. Only the sign. So, okay, very good. Okay, so. Back to Isaiah 35, verse 8. That's where we left off, and I took us on other paths. A highway will be there in this beautiful, renewed Israel. This is the portrait of an Israel put right, and hence a world put right. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean, they're not going to journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. This is for those who are going to walk the way of God. In a New Testament context, it would be to walk the way of Jesus. You've probably seen pictures of the feet on the beach, right? Mm -hmm. Walking in Jesus' way. Verse 9, no lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They won't be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. Redeemed is a word that means uh, to be bought out of slavery, it's a tricky word because you wouldn't like bought from whom, but we can set that aside. It's not really even a very helpful question. The redeemed, they were they redeemed from slavery in Egypt. We we have been redeemed um, from from sin and death by Jesus' faithfulness. That's why it's called Good Friday. The, the Israelites were redeemed from slavery to Pharaoh. We have been redeemed from slavery to sin and slavery to death. Only the redeemed will walk there, and those Yahweh has rescued will return. If you can tie it all the way to the end of the Bible, to Revelation, when the book of life is opened up, and the names of all of the people who have, whom God has chosen and who have chosen God, whom God has rescued, are read out. And they step into, they step onward in eternity with, 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 with Christ. Those the Yahweh has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow 
and sighing and death and grief and mourning and all the terrible things that can overwhelm us, they're going to be far away. These are really very, very common portraits across Scripture of where God is taking us, is taking humanity, is taking his creation. And we need to appreciate them every place we come upon them. Because remember, Israel, the people of Israel, the people of Abraham, Abraham's family, they were not chosen for their own sake. They were chosen for the sake of the whole world. God chose them to be the ones through whom God would act to rescue humanity. And so the rescue of Israel depicted in chapter 35 is indeed our rescue as well. Just as Jesus, the ever-faithful Messiah of Israel, is our Savior as well. Because it was always about the larger, the larger purpose. Okay? Well, Patty. Yes. Do you have anything you would like to add there? No. Anybody got anything they want to add? don't think so. I, th I do think it helped, though, going back to both those two very famous yeah, scriptures. Yeah, it does. You know, it's, it's, it's important to try to, to try to connect dots, okay, really. And just because I think a lot of people, they, they turn away from the Old Testament simply because they don't. You need kind of like a, kind of like a tour guide <laughs> from a lot of the Old Testament. And there's no, there's nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with that at all. It's what we're here for. This is a, this is a team game, team sport, team effort. Okay, so now we're going to go to Isaiah 36. And now, if you just look at the page, you'll see things that are changing, right? Because now we've had these law, all these pages of basically poetic form, yes. and now we're back to a prose, and. These chapters, 36, 37, 38, 39, are um, largely passages that you find very much in the book of Second Kings. They're not exactly the same. There are things here that aren't there and there that aren't here. But the basic, the basic story and much of the actual passages themselves are the same. So if you were to go to Second Kings, which we won't do right now, um, you could find you'll you'll find a bit in there about Isaiah, and you'll find a bit about Sennacherib's, you know, uh, threat against Jerusalem. You'll find a bit about Hezekiah's illness. It's all there, and it is all here. Um, and so in these chapters, it's like it all. The earlier chapters are coming together because on the one hand, we have the great empire of the Assyrians and Sennacherib, who is, I do think you say it that way, <laughs> Sennacherib, that's how I'm going to say it. I didn't look it up. I was pretty confident. Sennacherib um, is the 
latest ruler of the mighty Assyrian Empire, that for the people of this world encompasses almost everything they know. The reach of the Assyrians is immense. Their armies are immense. And it is about the year 701 B.C. So let's just, let me get us grounded again here. Steve will be, my friend Steve will be happy. Okay. You got a map for okay, us? I got maps for us. Okay, so here's that larger, that larger helicopter map. Um, I'm just, Babylonia is to the east. The green, uh, Babylonia is not a major power yet. They're going to ascend to be a major power, but they're, I just highlighted it so you would see where it is. The green is the Assyrian Empire. Okay, and you can see the um, the green, the red arrow that we had a few weeks ago is just to help you grasp that, well, um, Israel is sort of this superhighway connecting these great empires. And when the book, when the Scroll of Isaiah begins, Israel consists of two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire sweeps away the northern kingdom. And they're lost. They're gone. They're wiped out. They're erased from the map. Not that everybody's killed, but they're all shipped to other places. Other folks are brought in to live there. Um, some of their descendants are the Samaritans of Jesus' day. And what is left nicely enough, in the orange is the kingdom of Judah. So that is, and that's all during the early years of Isaiah's ministry. And all of Israel is quite sure that, that the Assyrians, just as they wiped out the northern kingdom, they are going to wipe out the southern kingdom and wipe out Jerusalem, send everybody away. That's why um, the kings of, his, of, of the people's kings are tempted to, to um, make agreements with other powers trying to get them protection even when God has said don't do it, right? There's nothing wrong with, with, with making agreements with others. But when God tells you what God thinks you ought to do, it's probably a good thing if you do that. And um, that hasn't been the case. And the question is, will Hezekiah finally be that righteous king who will make the correct choice and do what God says? That's the question on the table. Really, I think for... Um, it, 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 it's the question that a lot of the, almost everything in the book has been bringing us to. That question, 701 BC, Sennacherib invades the kingdom of Judah. And he's right there. The kingdom of Judah is down to this shrunken little orange thing there. You know, kind of like that. There's not much left. The mighty empire, the, the lighter green to the darker green is the growth of the Assyrian Empire. You can see it reaching eventually down into Egypt and so forth. 
And so Sennacherib is... So they kind of like surrounded by the Assyrians. Oh, they, the Assyrians just have yes. these massive armies, massive powers. It's like, what is it like? It's like the, yeah. Is it like today? Hey, I'm, I'm Texas. I'm a Texan. It's like the Alamo. Okay. <laughs> right? It's the Alamo. That's what it's like. It's like the Alamo. That, I mean, what kind of military power do, do the people of Judah have or Jerusalem or anything? They don't have any. They have a city, and they have a city with walls. That's good, right? Walls, walls can keep people out for a while. That is what happens is the conquering army just lays siege and starves them out. But so the I you know here's the way I pictured because I like to have pictures of things in my mind's eye. So here's Jerusalem, and Jerusalem by the way is surrounded by hills. And so it, there is Sennacherib's armies are just all around. They're like this great gaping maw of a mouth waiting to swallow up Jerusalem. And the question before Hezekiah, the king of Judah, at this time, in 701 B.C., is going to be, what will you do? Will you trust God or not? And what will God do? So, because God has said in earlier in Isaiah that God is going to knock the Assyrians off the perch that they are that they're on right now but right now they are on the top of the perch they're like that they're like a they're, they're like the eagle up there at the highest perch just owning the whole terrain so is that a dramatic enough beginning yes, patty I think so. <laughs> so chapter 36 of isaiah verse 1 your Bible may even give you the cross-references to 2 Kings and the Second Chronicles, where you would find really pretty much the same story. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, and it is about 701 B.C. if you work it all out, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So, it's just like a tightening noose, right? And what is the big prize? Jerusalem. You got it. That Jerusalem is the big prize. Could, so, could this at all? Could we say this is at all what's happening in Eastern Europe right now too? Sure. I mean, um, Russia's this big, mighty power, big, mighty, and, and and they're just wanting to swallow it all up. Yes. Right, and yes. they're willing. Right, exactly. You know, it is like that actually. Yes. Except the disparity between the two countries is even greater. In, in, in between Assyria and the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Judah is nothing. Right, right. Well, Assyria is the great mighty kingdom. There's probably, well, I won't, I won't speculate. Okay, so sec, first verse, Sennacherib comes in and he captures all the fortified towns of Judah. All right, so now he's just perched there waiting to swoop in and take um, Jerusalem. So the king of Assyria, right, verse 2, sends his field commander with a large army from Lachish, which is to the west of Jerusalem, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. He's going to send envoys because sieges are time consuming, costly, 
They slow you down. He doesn't want that. He just wants the city to surrender. That's what he wants. Now, when the commander, this is the Assyrian commander, stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field, do we really know where all of that exactly is? Nah. In Jerusalem, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. So those are three key figures. So there's an Assyrian commander, an envoy, who comes to the city and is met by Eliakim, Shebna, and Asaph. And the field commander said to them, Tell your king, tell Hezekiah this, tell your king this. Quote, he's like a telegram deliverer. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, and you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? As in, how dare you not simply surrender the city to me? Look, I know you are depending upon Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, well, we are depending on Yahweh our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Which betrays what on the part of the Assyrians? Well, I guess I guess I would have to give more history that they don't understand. You see, Hezekiah went around destroying pagan altars, mm-hmm. right? Yes. The Assyrians have it backwards because they don't care for the Assyrians. Ah, you got your god. That's so cute. That's so sweet. You know, we got a hundred gods and goddesses. You got yours. It's awesome. You know, sure. What difference does it make? Make a few mistakes along the way. Who cares? Verse 8, they get down to, to, to brass tacks and they're going to make an offer because sieges are expensive, difficult, costly, and time-consuming. Verse 8, Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses. <laughs> if you could put riders on them, you weak little people. (laughs) Verse 9, how then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without Yahweh? Yahweh himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. So now he's invoking the God of the Israelites against the Israelites. Well, what would you do if you were Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah at this point? Well, here's what they do. They said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since the three of us understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. So they don't want the city to find out what the Assyrians are saying and offering. Okay? Mm -hmm. The commander replied, 
Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who, like you, are going to have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Dot, 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 if they set siege to the city, right? That's all, that's what this is all about. They're going to sit, um. <laughs> okay. So then the commander stands up. I can picture him standing up in a full voice, calling out in Hebrew, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in Yahweh when he says, Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the great Oz, no wait, the great king of Assyria says, make peace with me, come out to me, then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine, your own fig tree, drink water from your own cistern, until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. See? He's bypassing the king's representatives, trying to speak to the people so the people will revolt and insist that um, that the city surrender to the Assyrians because then they'll be able to go out and be able to live this wonderful life in a different place. And of course, these are Israelites. It's Jerusalem. It's the city of God. Um, how many people... Do you think the Assyrians need, how many city people do you think the Assyrians need to betray Hezekiah? Only a handful. They only need enough to open the gates. That's true. That's all they need. That story is told time and time again in the ancient world. All they need is somebody to open the gates. That's the issue. The, at this time in warfare, they didn't have the means to overcome the city walls. So you, it, uh, a big focus was trying to find a traitor or somebody on the inside who would open the gates and let them and 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 let them in. Okay, so verse eighteen, he's going. He's going on. This is the envoy from the Assyrian king. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, Yahweh will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their hands from the hand, their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? At this point, let's see, if this were a soccer match between Assyria and their opponents, the score would be about 65 to 0. <laughs> so the answer is no, nobody has been delivered from the Assyrians. They've taken everything. Of course, what is the difference? They have never run into Yahweh, actually, right? right? Yes. For the Assyrians, the world is filled with all kinds of gods and goddesses of various powers, but they have they don't can't even comprehend that there's only one God. 
Verse 19, Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How can Yahweh deliver Jerusalem from my hand? I'm sure for the, for, for the Israelites inside the city, it's, it's, it's terribly offensive that the Assyrians are using the name of God. Right? Because that's what's under that small caps, Lord, is the name of God. That's why I'm using it. Verse 21, but the people, dot, 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 all the people, remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, do not answer him. So they are remaining loyal to Hezekiah and consequently loyal to God, right? Well, verse 22 of Isaiah 36, then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna the secretary, Joah son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, which is an indication of grief and mourning and bad things to come, and told him what the field commander had said. Chapter 37. Well, they relay it all. And it's, it's bad. It's just bad. Hezekiah is there in Jerusalem. He's got the walls around him, yes. But he has the Assyrian army arrayed around him. They're anxious to finish off Jerusalem and go sink their teeth into the Egyptians. And Hezekiah is... Wow. When Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth. And he went to the right place. He didn't go to the situation room. He went into the temple of Yahweh. He goes to God. That's what that's about. Where does he go? He goes to God. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priest, all wearing sackcloth. To whom? To the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. See? By now, Isaiah's an older guy by now. And they told him, well, Isaiah, this is what Hezekiah says. This is what Hezekiah says. This is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the moment of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that Yahweh your God will hear the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God. Because that's what's really going on, right? Mm -hmm. He was actually ridiculing the living God. And that he will rebuke him for the words, Yahweh your God has heard. Therefore pray for the remnant that still survives. So all of that can be captured in the, in, in the thought that they've gone to Isaiah and said, 
These Assyrians are even rebuking God. It does seem like all is lost. And all we ask of you, Isaiah, is to pray for whatever remnant of Israel survives. There's no huge request here, is there? Save us, save us, save us, Isaiah. Save us, save us, save us, God. There isn't that. Pray for the remnant that still survives. Well, when King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. This is what Yahweh says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen. When he hears a certain report, when he gets a certain word about something, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. Wow. This is the emperor of Assyria. That's well, in his own country. In his own country. Wow. It's got, basically what he's saying. I... He's gonna hear something, and he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna pack it up, and go to his own country, where I will have him cut down with a sword. Verse eight. Well, when the field commander, this is the Assyrian field commander, heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, he withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. This is just cleanup operations on the part of the Assyrians. Now, Sennacherib received a report to go back to verse, what was it? Verse 7. He received a report that Turkaka, <laughs> the king of Cush, that's that area that's not really Ethiopia, but it's south of Egypt, was marching out to fight against him. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word. Quote, Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely, and you will be delivered? See, because now the king of Assyria is getting a little bit desperate. He is anxious to get on with the fight with the, with the much mightier power, Cush. Not, not these little Israelites. Did the God, verse 12, did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them? The gods of Gozan, Haran, Resef, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath or the king of Arpad? Where are the kings of Lair, Sepharvim, Hena, and Iva? See, I told you, it was 65 to 0. What will Hezekiah do? Hezekiah received, verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and he read it. And where did he go? Oh, bless the man, bless the man, bless Hezekiah. He went up to the temple of Yahweh and he spread it all out before Yahweh and he prayed to Yahweh. Yahweh Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone, our God over all the kingdoms of the earth. That's what chapters 12 through 25 demonstrate 
in the scroll of Isaiah. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, Yahweh, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. Verse 18, it is true, Yahweh, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these people in their lands. It's true it was 65 to nothing. They thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods to begin with, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now Yahweh our God deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Yahweh, are the only God. And here's what is so fascinating. That is almost exactly the same thing, same conversation that Moses has with God about the Egyptians. Why should God save the Hebrews? What is happening? Why must God defeat Pharaoh so that all the world would see? And now here it is 700 years later so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Yahweh, are indeed the only God, not just the best God, which is how it was in Moses' day, but the only God. All those others, go look back up a few words, are all those other gods and goddesses. They're not gods and goddesses. They're just fashioned out of wood and stone. Well, then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed to me, this is God speaking, concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word Yahweh has spoken against him. And we get, oh gosh. Should I finish this, Patty? Should I bridge it just a bit to have it done by 415 or save it? I don't know how in detail you want it to be. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Read it through. And then we can go back over it next week if we need to. Well, we'll get the drift of it pretty easily. Virgin daughter Zion despises and mocks you. Daughter Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee, you stinking Assyrians. I'm elaborating. Who is it that you have ridiculed and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. That's that That's that way to speak of God. Not unique to Isaiah, but very much used in the scroll of Isaiah. By your messengers you have ridiculed Yahweh, and you have said, With my many chariots I have ascended the heights of the mountains. The utmost heights of Lebanon, I've cut down its tallest cimbers, the choicest of its junipers. I've reached its remotest heights, the finest of its forts. I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there with the soles of my feet. I have dried up all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago I ordained it, God says. In days of old I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their people drained of power are dismayed and put to shame. They are like plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. But I know where you are and when you come and go and how you rage against me. 
because you rage against me and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose, in my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came. This will be the sign for you, Hezekiah, king. Because the other part was to the Assyrians, right? So then God says, Isaiah says, this will be the sign for you, Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself, and the second year what springs from that. And in the third year, reap and sow, plant vineyards and eat the fruit because you are not going to be stuck in your city besieged. Once more, a remnant of the kingdom of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of Yahweh Almighty, Yahweh Sabaoth will accompany accomplish this. Therefore, this is what Yahweh says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares Yahweh. I will defend this city. I will save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord a key Old Testament figure, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his son, his sons Adramalek and Sherezir killed him with a sword. And they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. End of Sennacherib's story. Wow. Wow. So, um, when, you might ask me, well, okay, so what do sources say outside the Bible about what happened? They will all tell you that Sennacherib, on the verge of taking Jerusalem, simply left. And he never did take Jerusalem. It was like that map had. Um, it became just this little orange dot down there, basically. Jerusalem and maybe some villages around it. That becomes, in essence, the kingdom of Judah. In the, in the middle of this Assyrian Assyrian Empire. Um, and, you know, the 185,000 dead, you know, the way I tend to read Scripture when I come to things like this is, is, I really don't think I'm supposed to think that there were actually 185,000 dead bodies. But it's a way of speaking of the utterly astounding, unexpected, completely shattering victory that God has over the Assyrians. And maybe what we'll do next week, we will, we will look at the account a bit in the book of Kings, which is a bit ex expanded about... Um, how this 
how this happens and what happens that day. Because the most relevant part of this story is what? That Jerusalem was saved God and was the Assyrians faithful. were sent packing. Yep. And um, in a few decades, the Assyrians will be supplanted by the Babylonians. But gosh, all of that gives us something to talk about next week, huh? Not next week. Not next week, Scott. Two weeks. We're not here next week. I'll be in California. <laughs> oh, man. Possibly on the Harry Potter ride. Possibly on the Harry Potter ride at this time next Monday afternoon. Who knows? Okay. Like, wow. Well, you did a great job of reading that so fast. I like the yeah. little different little voices you put on, too. <laughs> well, you know, for me, I mean, I, I when I read it, I, I mean, I have to read it to where I can try to understand what, what it is I'm reading. Right. Right? So that's why you sometimes think a little bit unusual voices but there we go i hope it's helpful is it helpful patty was helpful okay well there we go (laughs) okay well we thank you all for being with us today it was a good good group today online good good super folks and happy easter monday couples watching together and so all that was great um we will be in Smith, not in Smith, excuse me. We will be down in Pirro Hall tomorrow at 12. We're finishing up the Gospel of John. We're, we're close to finishing it. We will it. finish it tomorrow. Okay. And then the week after we come back, which I believe it will be like May 2nd or 3rd. May, First, 2nd, 3rd, May 3rd. Uh, May 3rd. On that Tuesday, we'll be starting a brand new book, and it will be Corinthians. First Corinthians, yes. So, um we hope, though, that those of you who would like to be would join and us spread tomorrow. The, help me spread the word. Because people like to, to join us when... We start a new book. When we start something new. So yes. we're going to start First Corinthians anew in yes. on the 3rd of May. Right. So that, that'll be good. But I'm sure tomorrow Scott will be tying up the whole Gospel of John at the end. Yeah, we're just, we got the last resurrection accounts and... In perfect time. Up. In perfect timing. That's what's been cool about yes. the way it's worked out as we've yeah. been in the resurrection accounts and Good Friday and the resurrection accounts and stuff all at this time of year. It's been awesome. Mm-hmm. It has been. A God thing. Yes, it has been a God thing. <laughs> so let's close in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, God, for this beautiful day. And we thank you, God, for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We, Lord, we, we just, we love you. We are grateful and lord we just ask you to please hold this group close we've been together for a very long time many of us many many years together and lord today we lift up each person in this group their families and their friends we pray god for your wisdom and your discernment in each one of our lives we pray god for good health we pray god that you'd watch over us and keep us safe we are continuing to pray for bob and sharon as um Sharon will not have her surgery now until um, towards the end of May. And I know that's a very long time to wait. And we just pray that God will give them lots of peace about this upcoming surgery um, to remove a tumor on Sharon's kidney. And I know all of us who know and love the Kerrs, please keep them in prayer. It's very difficult when you have to wait so long. And Lord, we know that there are a lot of other prayers in this group, God, that people cannot voice right now, but we do pray, God, we know that your Holy Spirit can lift those prayers directly up to you, and we pray for that, Lord. 
So, Lord, bring us back safely, um, some of our group tomorrow at noon, and the rest of us, God, we pray that you'd bring us back together in two weeks. All this we pray in the name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, bye. Okay, everybody. Bye, guys. Adios. Bye-bye.